The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash career slash USBP. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to Underbirds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. We have a lot to get into on tonight's show as the Orioles have clinched a postseason berth for the first time since 2016. In addition, Heston Kerstad has made his major league debut. And we're going to take a deep dive into the Bowie Bay Sox 2023 season as that wrapped up over the weekend. But first, we're going to start out by announcing another guest for our live show at Checker Spot Brewing on October 2nd. And I'm going to turn that over to Bob. Yeah, it's hard to believe that's only two weeks away. Getting close now, but you might have seen this guy in the Orioles clubhouse yesterday getting drenched in uh, beer and champagne as long as everybody else. But uh, Mr. Andy Koska from the Baltimore Banner will be joining us and uh, look forward to that. We'll have John Mioli and Connor Newcomb as well. So come on down and, and check it us, check us out, ask some questions live. It should be a good time. Yeah, that's at Checker Spots Brewing's new location on Ridgely Street near Candom Yards. So definitely looking forward to that event. That's a reminder that is on Monday, October 2nd. We're slated to begin that show around 6.30 p.m. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk about the big news of the weekend and maybe the big news of the year, depending on how things play out from here, which is that the Baltimore Orioles have clinched a postseason berth. This is the first time since 2016 that the Orioles have reached the playoffs and marks a really satisfying outcome after years under a rebuild led by Mike Elias and his regime. But their extra innings win on Sunday and the Texas Rangers losing to the Cleveland Guardians, the Orioles clinch a postseason berth, becoming the first team in the American League to do so in the third overall in baseball. Currently, the Orioles 
at 93-56, and 56, sit two games ahead of the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League East. Now, with the Orioles holding the tiebreaker against the Rays because they won the season series, that two-game lead really is a de facto three-game lead with 13 contests left to play between now and the end of the regular season next weekend. The Orioles getting those final 13 games started Monday night down in Houston against a very tough Astros team, but undeniably riding high after this weekend. So, Nick, kind of take a moment here to step back. It was really a roller coaster of emotions. The Orioles lose the first two of the Tampa Bay series after dropping two in a row against the Cardinals, then storm back on Saturday night behind a dominant start from Grayson Rodriguez, and then win that extra innings game on Sunday. Not finished yet because we want to see the Orioles clinch the American League East, but how satisfying was all of this? Really satisfying that it comes against the Rays because I feel like I mentioned this on the previous episode that the moment that all this became real for me was that series against the Rays right after the Dodgers series when they, they I think they took what that final game against LA at home moved into a tie first place where they were headed by like percentage points ahead of Tampa Bay. And then they had to go to Tampa Bay. And I think they won that series. And it was like, all right, this is, this is different. And so to be playing Tampa Bay, Grayson Rodriguez coming out and just shoving, uh, I think really emerged, putting himself on the map nationally. Uh, it was all uh, surreal a little bit. Like, and I'm, Honestly, the part that, you know, it's cool for us as fans, we had to sit here and watch this, but, you know, we could, the last couple of years, we could turn the TV off. We could, I know I just flip over to a different game on MLB TV, right? I would, August rolls around, I'm watching college football, I'm watching NFL, I'm consuming all the football instead of baseball. I'm not worried about the Orioles. These guys couldn't do that. And specifically, I'm most excited for guys like Santander and Hayes and Mullins who had to sit here these last couple of years and, you know, not knowing like, all right, are they going to be the next veteran that gets shipped off? Like the, the front office is clearly not bringing in any help to you know, openly, you know, not trying to win games these last few years as they build this organization back up literally from the bottom up, like the fields in the Dominican. Uh, and so to, to see it's no more these promises of just like the future is going to be bright. Just stick this out. Like the future is here. It's now they're going to be bumps and bruises along the way that you mentioned. There's still a division to win. The playoffs are a gauntlet, but for right now, like the contention window is open and, and the Orioles are here. Yeah. As soon as you saw Michael Elias doing uh, beer bongs with the with the guys in the clubhouse, you knew the rebuild was officially over. And uh, yeah, we're just a force to be reckoned with now. And, and I don't think it's going to get any easier for other teams that have to deal with this moving forward for at least quite a while. But yeah, it was pretty surreal. Just the way they did it was just made it extra special. Obviously, that game Saturday night was just like, you know, you're feeling the most down. You're like nervous that they're going to sweep us. It's going to be the first sweep in like almost two seasons, and it's gonna, it's gonna hurt. And we'll have to settle for a wild card. Not to go all Kevin Brown on us, but then you know we just blow them out. It's an incredibly exciting game Saturday. And then you're, I'm already starting my cope on uh, Sunday when it's uh, Jorge Lopez gives up the back-to-back home runs. It's like, all right, well, at least we got one. You know, we still have the, the tiebreaker. And then the magic happened, and it was just like pandemonium. Um, I did a little baseball card break for the patrons that evening, and I had no energy left just from watching that game. So very curious to see how the Orioles perform tonight in Houston, but it doesn't matter. We're in the playoffs, and I'm excited. Got my... Uh, season ticket plan ready for next year just so I could have the opportunity to buy some playoff tickets and I'm ready. 
I'm going to introduce a guest that we have joining us tonight. He's coming off his first season as the PA announcer for the Bowie Bay Sox down at Prince George's Stadium. So chances are that if you went to a game this year, you heard him behind the microphone. We're happy to have him on the show tonight. He's also been a longtime member of our Patreon community. He is Mark Gray-Mendez. Mark, how's it going? Uh, really excited to be here. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Uh, it was you know, a really enjoyable season. Uh, hopefully a few of you who are listening uh, got a chance to catch a game this year and uh, really thrilled to be with you guys. So as an Orioles fan, how did you feel about this weekend? Oh, I mean, it was the the absolute roller coaster of emotions, like Bob was talking about. I mean, you're you're kind of keeping an eye on on the games on Thursday and Friday. We, my wife and I, watched all of Friday night's game on Apple TV Plus uh, downstairs in our house, and it was just you know, it was like pulling teeth. It was really rough. Uh, you know, Kerstad hitting one out was the only bright spot. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously Saturday, it's the polar opposite and you see a guy like Grayson that we've been paying so much attention to in this group, uh, for such a long time. And then he comes out and just has a dominant performance. So, um, and then, you know, I went through the exact same thing as, as Bob, except we were listening to it on the radios. We were on our way back from a trip we made this weekend. So, uh, glad to see that they got the job done and, uh, you know, getting that split and a little cushion into a tough week on the road, I think is going to be a big deal for the, for the guys. Hopefully it'll give them the edge they need to take the division. Yeah, the Orioles right now beginning their series down in Houston. That's going to be followed by a trip to Cleveland to face a Guardian scene that hasn't played very well this year, but at the same time has made life tough for some contending teams recently. They took a series from the Rays early in September, are coming off a sweep of the Texas Rangers. There were some clunkers in there in the middle, including a game against Minnesota that they lost by 14 runs. But nonetheless, Cleveland, not a team you want to take for granted. The Orioles will then come home next week to face the Nationals for two and then wind up the series or wind down the season with four against the Red Sox. So, Nick, when you look at the slate of opponents the Orioles have coming up, Astros, Guardians, Nationals, Red Sox, how do you feel about the Orioles' chances against those teams? I I never take like look at the schedule and be like, oh, this team's got this record, this team's got that record. Oh, it's just that team. Like they're not in the playoffs, they're not contention. Like none of that matters. Those teams, <laughs> a lot of those teams that you just mentioned are going to be. They would love uh, to spoil the Orioles' chances at taking the division. Uh, they would love to play be in that spoiler role. The Orioles have been in that spoiler role in, in years past. It, that last couple of days of the season, um, what was that? A couple of years? I just remember like that Boston series in particular, like. It's it's brutal. And these teams, these guys are professionals. They're not going to give up. They're not just going to roll over, even though their seasons may be done. So it's it's going to still be a grind. That's why it's cool. It's awesome that they're in the playoffs. They've clinched that. But like I said, there's still a lot of baseball left to be played uh, to get here through the series. Houston's going to be brutal. Uh, like you said, Cleveland's going to be pesky. Um, you know, it's you know, not to be like super negative or anything. I'm not going to sit here and say like the Orioles aren't going to like win these games or come out on top or anything, but it is just going to be extremely tough. And, and like I said, nobody's going to just roll over for this team because they're playing so well and their seasons are done. So, yeah, these guys are, are playing for, you know, their futures as well. So that's what makes it tough. And it's definitely scary that Boston is who we end with considering we uh, did them some damage in 2011. So hopefully they don't pay us back, but I think I saw, and it might even been Mark in the, patron group that uh if we go seven and six then the rays have to go eight and two because uh, we play two more games in them something like that so the pressure is definitely on them if we can just hover around 500 i'd love to get to 100 wins uh that would be a nice little milestone for the season yeah i mean we'll see how it goes i'm i'm always optimist i'm always confident 
and then uh, sometimes that bites me. So hopefully this time it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I think we'll win the division, and we'll get to see another big celebration before the playoff starts. But let's let it happen first. For anyone wondering what the race schedule looks like, they are off on Monday night, but then they begin a three-game series at the Trop against the Angels before a Blues A's team that has a lot to play for comes into town on Friday night. After an off day, the Rays will then head to Fenway Park for two before traveling to Toronto to wrap up the season for the Blue Jays, who, again, fighting for a wild card spot right now. So if there's a team uh, that among any of the opponents that the Orioles and the Rays face with a lot of incentive to win over the next two weeks, it's the Astros and the Blue Jays, who the Rays are going to have to face twice. Now, we will get into a little bit of prospect-related news that happened last week as Heston Kerstad made his major league debut. And I think at this point, the story speaks for itself. Everything that Kerstad has going, gone through after being drafted number two overall in 2020, missing an entire season because of myocarditis, and then beginning the 2022 season on the IL before making his debut late spring, early summer at Delmarva. He went to Bowie to begin this year, and from there really took off and emerged as one of the best hitters in the Orioles farm system and once again became a top 100 prospect in the game. Kerstad so far has four bats in the major league level. His lone hit and his first hit was a solo home run, which was really the lone highlight for the Orioles in their loss on Friday against the Rays at Camden Yards. So, Mark, I'll start with you here. You had a front row seat to much of Kerstad's season. Was there a point where you realized that he was about to do something special this year? I think I think everybody had a close eye on that because, you know, it was a little bit of an uneven campaign at Aberdeen, and that's to be expected after everything that he went through the previous year and I guess year and a half. Um, but, you know, coming into the season, he was coming off of the performance in the Arizona Fall League, which was tremendous. And I think his numbers were like video game numbers out there, as I recall. So coming into the season... Um, you know, it, it just took looking at a couple of BPs to go, oh my goodness, <laughs> it's just, this is something a little bit different. And uh, you could tell that you were looking at, at a real bona fide left-handed power hitter that was going to do some damage. Um, what I didn't realize about him was how um, just how prodigious his opposite field power is. I, did, I didn't see that. And that, uh, you know, that alley sort of where the where the uh, where the Orioles and the visitors bullpens are, that's going to get tattooed at Camden Yards over the next couple of years because that's really where a lot of his impressive power stroke lies. Um, he hits the ball incredibly hard. I think I was expecting him to have a little bit more swing and miss issues at Double A because I mean you know that's that's usually especially for a league like the Eastern League, you're going to see a lot of good pitching come through there on a night in night out basis. Uh, but all he did was come up and take professional at bats and perform. Uh, I don't think his strikeout rate went above about 20% for most of the season that, that he was at double A. And I mean, it was really impressive to watch just the way he would take his at bats. And, uh, you know, he had to balance that with getting reps at first base for, I think, you know, I don't think he had a ton of experience there uh, previously, but he, but he was getting some some shots over there as well. And so it was great to see. I think we all felt really good for him and, and watching him do the damage that he did. He was hovering around a 950 to 1000 OPS for the entire time he was in Bowie. So I think it was it was really, really great to see. Um, and I think that the clubhouse and everybody in the organization was really happy for him, too. Yeah, I, I got to see him early on in spring training this year. I saw that opposite field power. He hit two home runs to the opposite field, uh, either game one or game two of the spring training season, and uh, he never slowed down. Actually, if you go back further, 
ever since the Arizona Fall League. I don't think he slumped until about a month ago in AAA finally. Uh, and now hopefully he's he's bounced back. I think this is nice to give him a, a little taste of the big leagues, get him uh, accustomed to just being in the, even in just the clubhouse, not necessarily on the field. And then you can work on his defense depending on where you want to play him next year over the offseason. But if he proves to be capable, you could have him on the playoff roster or or not. You have options. So I think it's cool. And obviously, you know, that was definitely made that Friday game. It was Friday's game. Yeah, Friday's game uh, at least somewhat meaningful when he hit that bomb. But, yeah, I'm happy he's here. And uh, we'll see a lot of him over the next five, six years, I'm sure. I was just shocked that it was Kershide who got the call, especially when it was McKenna who they sent back to AAA because like they never really made that move all year. Like we people begged for Kyle Stowers all year, but we knew it was never going to be Kyle Stowers uh, because of the center field defense aspect. And then Kowser got his taste of the majors, so I assumed like if we're going to see one of those guys, it was going to be Kowser. Uh, he can play center field. He's got the good eye at the plate, all that good stuff. You figure he got the taste. Yeah, he wasn't hitting great down there in AAA, uh, but still, he, he had his moments down there as soon as he got back that first week when they sent him back to AAA, and he's at least experienced a little bit in the major leagues. But Kershaw's been good, like you guys have said, all year, except for that tiny little blurb down there in Norfolk. And even then, he wasn't terrible. And like Mark said, the swing and miss. He's not a big swing and miss guy like we thought he probably would be. You see a big power hitter like that, big power hitting corner outfield guy, you expect some swing and miss and you're it's okay. You can accept a little bit of swing and miss with these guys, but Kerstad, it, it wasn't there. Um, I, I still go back to, I know we've talked about this before, but I still go back to uh, who was it? One of the, not Mayo, the other guy at MLB pipeline, Jim Callis, you know, Jim Callis out in the Arizona fall league saying like, yeah, he's striking out a lot in the Arizona fall league, but it's not an issue. You're like, okay. Um, it, <laughs> it's going to be an issue when he gets to like Bowie in Norvik. He, he nailed it. He was right. Um, you know, it's it's just mind blowing to see like the fact that he's already in the major leagues because you know he only got to play what a couple weeks that last season at Arkansas before the pandemic doesn't play 2021 because of the serious heart condition. We're questioning whether or not we're ever going to see him play baseball. I think it was more of an issue of like the concern over his his well being as a human being, not as a baseball player even. And then 2022, he got that delayed start because he hurt his hamstring on what one of the last days of, of training camp or something before the team broke they, they broke camp or something. So it's been a long road for Kerstad, but he breezed his way through the minor leagues. And um, yeah, big league debuts are always fun, but I felt like that Kerstad one was even extra special because knowing his history and yeah. Yeah, from a general perspective, I mean, that's one of the most impressive things this player development system has done is take guys and get rid of some of that swing and miss. Like we saw Kyle Stowers had his strikeout rate cut down a lot from 21 to 22. Uh, Colton Kowser was a, his strikeouts were going to be a problem. Now they're not. Um, Gunnar Henderson has cut his strikeout rate down as the season has gone on by being more aggressive. Um, Samuel Basayo, Kobe Mayo, Hessen Kersad, power hitting guys who really don't have as much swing and miss in their game as you would expect. And, uh, you know, hopefully Judd Fabian's next on that list because that could be a key for his development. But, uh, yeah, Kerstad, he, he has three strikeouts in four at-bats so far. But I think once you get a real sample size, like, it, it's not going to be an issue, like Jim Callis said. Always like that guy. Yeah, I tend to – I've made this point before about pitchers that I tend to not put that much weight in the early strikeout-to-walk numbers because I 
tend to believe they're going to go in the wrong direction initially. And I kind of give hitters the same benefit of the doubt. Like, guys probably going to strike out more than you would like to see, not going to walk as much. And for Kerstad, you know, next early next year is probably going to be the first real extended sample size we get with him. And I expect some of those problems to be there. But, Bob, as you said, this system has a track record now of being able to at least curtail that problem a little bit with hitters. And we've had very good proof that in the major leagues this year with Gunnar Henderson. If you look at his struggles over the first two months of the season compared to his production from June 1st on when he's practically played like an MVP candidate, you can see a night and day difference. And while Kerstad might not have the same kind of all-around value or impact that Henderson has had so far, I could see him being a really key part of this lineup by this time next year. Yeah, you're going to have two guys. You're going to have Heston Kerstad. Uh, you might have Jackson Holiday on that opening day roster, not to look ahead too far, right? But, I mean, the Orioles are going to have some uh, serious rookie of the year candidates uh, on this opening day roster next year. And, yeah, Kerstad, I think we'll figure out the defense you know, later. You know, question, you know, where does he fit best defensively? I know, but worry about that, I feel like, next year. Right now, he's... He's getting, he got literally quite a taste of the big leagues the other day. That picture of him in the shopping cart looked absolutely disgusting. Um, I, I, I enjoyed all the videos and all, all the photos. That one I could have done without. Um, maybe gag a little bit. But uh, so he's getting quite the taste of the major leagues, but it's, it's good. It's a, it's a good taste for him. Yeah, other than the taste of those condiments mixed together. <laughs> We'll dive into Kerstad's old team, the Bowie Bay Sox, in just a moment. We'll talk about some of the top prospects that appeared in Bowie this year, including some players that ended the season there, such as Samuel Basayo and Dylan Beavers. But first, we're going to give a word from our sponsor, DraftKings. We're back with another week of football, and DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping us in on the NFL action with great offers every single game day. New customers can bet $5 and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Throw five down on any of this week's epic matchups to walk away an instant winner. And DraftKings isn't stopping there. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every game day this September. Football is more fun when you're in on the action. So download the app now and sign up with code ONTHEVIRDS. New customers can bet just $5 to get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL with code on the verge, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas, licensee partner, Golden Nugget, Lake Charles, Louisiana. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility, terms and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. And we'll turn our attention now back to the Bowie Bay Sox, who finished the Eastern League season with a record of 67 and 70 under the guidance of manager Kyle Moore. The Bay Sox did make a late season push for the playoffs, finishing four and a half behind first place Richmond in the Eastern League Southwest in the second half, 
when they went 36 and 32 over the final half of the season. And there were a lot of big name prospects that passed through Bowie this year. We just talked about Heston Kerstad, who began his 2023 season with an excellent 46 game run with the Bay Sox before being promoted to Norfolk. However, just to name a few of the other prospects that donned a Bay Sox uniform this year. Samuel Basayo, Dylan Beavers, Judd Fabian, Jackson Holiday. We also saw Kobe Mayo and Cesar Prieto begin their very good seasons there. John Rhodes came through uh, for the whole season. Max Wagner joined the team in the second half. And then on the pitching side of things, a lot of pitchers either got their dominant years started at Bowie or continued them after being promoted from a lower level. So guys like Justin Armbruster, Chase McDermott, and Cade Pilvich were able to sign in the Bay Sox rotation before being promoted to Norfolk, while Alex Pham, the breakout star of the Orioles pitching prospects this year, after a very good run in Aberdeen, somehow managed to be better at the AA level. Gene Pinto also joined the Bay Sox and was solid over nine games for them. So a lot of highlights when you look up and down this roster. And Mark, we'll start with you here. It had to be fun to see the Bay Sox make that late season push despite coming up just short of the playoffs. Um, but they had a lot of talent roll through in the second half. What do you think really came together that made them successful and ultimately got them just a few games short of the playoffs? Well, it was a, it was a tough beginning of the season, I think. Um, I want to say, you know, we started out about four and four. And then I was just looking through today just to kind of see where the light bulb came on. And uh, I noticed we were running about, I think it was 10 and 24, uh, right in the middle of May, which is a slog. I mean, that's, that's rough. <laughs> and it was a lot of reasons. I think the biggest, uh, from my perspective, was probably it was a little bit of a revolving door up the middle on the defensive end. Um, you know, not a whole lot of stability at the catcher position. Um, and, you know, a lot of guys getting looks at uh, shortstop and second base. So it was kind of not, not a ton of consistency on a day-in, day-out basis. Uh, and when that's the case, you know, when you're struggling up the middle on defense, that has major, major implications. I think the real turning point was, I want to say it was May 19th. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a day like any other. Um, Chase McDermott was on the hill, had kind of a typical Chase McDermott outing where he was pretty much untouchable, uh, brutal fastball that guys just couldn't catch up to. And I think he went five innings and uh, maybe had three or four walks, probably six strikeouts, but no hits. And then Easton Lucas comes on and Nolan Hoffman comes on behind him. And before you know it, it's a combined uh, no hitter. Uh, between those three guys and that was a huge moment I think a great release of pressure for that group and it was it was something that they clearly really enjoyed one of the highlights of my uh, time just in sports in general and from that point on it seemed like you know there was a little bit more looseness in the group and it seemed like they were having a little bit more fun uh, together and you know once you started seeing guys like Holiday and guys like um you know, uh, Joseph Rosa even was a, a midseason signing that, you know, while he's not necessarily high on anybody's prospect list, he was a quality, credible shortstop who was able to make plays. Um, and, and as you got more stability, Silas Ardwan comes up in the middle of the year and he becomes a little bit more of a stabilizing influence catcher position. So uh, to me, that was one of the biggest things. And you started to see a lot more solidity in the outfield to the point where by the end of the season, uh, you had a four-man rotation of uh, Billy Cook, John Rhodes, Judd Fabian, Dylan, Dylan Beavers, and then Dante Williams in addition. Um, and those guys were covering all the ground out there and converting balls that were hits earlier in the season into outs. 
And so, you know, when you start to see the team play together defensively, then I think everything kind of came together and, and made it made it uh, a lot more likely that we were going to see wins on on a night in night out for them. Um, you know, you saw, I think a ton of credit goes to uh, Sherman Johnson, the hitting coach, because um, you saw guys who were there for the majority of the season really take huge, huge strides as hitters. Obviously, the biggest guy is Billy Cook. Um, his season kind of mirrored the Bay Sox season as a whole. Started out uh, as cold as ice. He was slated as the leadoff hitter at the beginning of the season. And I think uh, at the end of April, he had like a 300 OPS. He'd been demoted all the way down the order. Um, and, and it was, it was just a really rough time for him. And he ended the season as almost a 25, 30 guy. And I think he finished third in the Eastern league in home runs, 24, um, you know, John Rhodes making big strides throughout the whole season. Um, you know, uh, uh Dante Williams is another great example, a really hit into a lot of terrible luck early in the season. Didn't have a high strikeout rate for the entire year. I think his BABIP was something in the 277 range for the season, which for a guy with that kind of speed, you know, that's, that's going to be a little low. Um, but by the end of the season, he was giving really, really tough at bats, eight pitch, nine pitch, fouling off a bunch of pitches and then getting on base via walk. When he gets on, obviously it creates a lot of, of good stuff for the bottom of that lineup. So uh, to me, it was just the coaching staff coming together and the group of guys really sort of melding. Um, and of course, you know, you had the big names that came through along the way, like you mentioned. Um, Kobe Mayo was just otherworldly for this team this year. I'm not even sure the numbers that you see on him uh, do it justice. That's a guy who the ball comes off his bat and it, it's different. It sounds completely different. Um, and, you know, he, his the doubles power was ridiculous. I think he led the Eastern League in doubles maybe all the way through the season, even though he didn't play the last two months there, uh, which just, it just blows your mind. But, uh, you know, the team... Like I said, individual performances, guys getting better, guys bubbling up from Aberdeen and being ready to hit the ground running, especially on the pitching side. Guys that you mentioned, um, you know, Alex Pham, Brandon Young coming back. Um, just a lot of guys making contributions, and that's that's just it was really really fun to watch from that perspective up in the press box. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm glad you called out Sherman Johnson. I had him noted here, just kind of yeah. generally looking back at Bowie's season. Like, first of all, I think Bowie since we. Every year since we started this podcast, Bowie is the team that provides all the excitement at the end of the year because either like they make that late season push and we get to see a fun playoff race at the end of the year, or it's someone like I feel like Akron. I feel like Akron and Bowie rivalry is always a fun one to watch, but like Akron or Erie, someone charges up late season surge. You mentioned the pitching; it's always great pitching with those two organizations, and it's it's a fun race to the to the end of the year. But I feel like this year with Bowie, yeah, there was that stretch there where. You know, John Rhodes is probably the biggest quote unquote prospect uh, in, in that lineup. But at the same time, like Bowie stayed competitive for the final like three fourths of that season. And you had Sherman Johnson, a hitting coach, where I think you saw bats like Billy Cook emerge and you saw guys like Dylan Beavers. Once he got to Bowie, he continued to improve. You guys, you really didn't see the bats miss a beat once they moved up to Bowie. And you had a first year hitting coach down there in Bowie. Um, I think this time last year, Sherman Johnson was playing indie ball somewhere. So this is like his first uh, pro coaching gig. And it's, it's awesome. We had Forrest Herman as well, moving up from Aberdeen to Bowie. And I think you saw a lot of guys, a couple pitchers, at least in spe specifically like Alex Pham, Chase McDermott, you saw these guys establish themselves as legitimate top 30 pitching prospects. And we'll get into more like specific player takes and everything, but I think you guys have under the radar bullpen names down there in Bowie as well. It's a big leaps this year so yeah always fun down there at uh, prince george's stadium 
Yeah, Bowie, I don't really have too much to add. You guys covered a lot of ground there, and it was fantastic stuff. But Bowie is always like an evolving place because no one that starts at Bowie typically is going to end at Bowie. And like, I mean, Billy Cook, obviously, and there's a few examples, John Rhodes. But for the most part, your bigger prospects are going to start there and end in AAA, or you know they're going to start lower and end there like Samuel Basayo, which in the, that portends to a, a nice first half for him uh, in Bowie next season. But yeah, it's always it's always fun. You're always like, oh man, this doing this person's playing so well. Can't wait to see them get promoted. But then it's like, well, who's going to take their place? I think it's easy to overlook that Kobe Mayo. He didn't start off cold by any stretch, but his June and July were just absurd, like 1100 plus. OPS and uh, he just dominated the Eastern League for a solid two, two and a half months there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, yeah, the pitching, I think we've talked about it on here. Like that's where you go to to learn your control. Uh, your strikeout rate goes down, but so does your walk rate. It seemed like every pitcher that came through, uh, through Bowie for the most part. So clearly they have a plan in mind and a, a goal and, and they're, they're achieving it. So kudos to the coaches and, uh, it's always a fun place to watch baseball, that's for sure. I think Billy Cook's a guy we should take a few minutes to talk about because he was probably one of the better stories on the position player side of the Orioles farm system this year. Like Mark mentioned, Cook got off to a really slow start, struggled over about the first month or so of the season, and then caught fire after that and finished the year with a two fifty one average, 776 OPS, 24 homers with 81 RBIs and 30 steals in 33 attempts. But that final stat line doesn't really tell the full story because this has always been one of my favorite exercises of this season is to actually just go and look at Billy Cook's monthly splits. Now, he did cool off a little bit towards the end of the season. I should note that. But if you look at his OPS by month over the first four months of this year, 321 in the month of April, 885 in the month of May, 909 in June, and then 848 in July. So he seemingly got better as the season went on, especially from about May 1st through the end of July. So, Mark, I'll start with you here. What adjustments do you, could you see him making that allowed him to be more successful? And what do you, how do you think he compares now to some of the other prospects in the system? I think he was at the beginning of the year, it seemed like he was just trying to do too much. Uh, I don't know if he was putting an undue amount of pressure on himself for whatever reason, uh, but it just seemed like, you know, the, the swing and miss was very real for him. It seemed like he was having a lot of difficulty either anticipating or identifying off speed stuff. Uh, he's always been able to hit the fastball and a number, you know, a lot of his sort of heating up in the middle of the year was, you know, he'd come out and ambush a first pitch fastball and clear the, uh, you know, the, the ad boards over in left field. Um, but, but the breaking stuff would give him trouble. And as the year went on, you, you started to see him do a little bit more of, you know, looking to hit the ball the other way, as you see with most guys, when they start focusing more and going up the middle, all of a sudden, a lot of things fall into place. And I think that's exactly what happened with Billy. And, you know, you love to see it because he's clearly a guy who so much loves the game. He's just such a raw athlete. He's tremendous to watch out there. And you can tell that his teammates really enjoy being around him and that they enjoy when he's successful. Um, seems like a guy who, you know, you kind of cross your fingers and hope that it gets to this point, but a guy who would really fit in to that clubhouse full of really fun, loving guys up in Baltimore, uh, if he can make uh, find a way to crack that, uh, you know, down the road in his career. Um, but you could tell it was really bothering him early in the year. I think it was one of those things that, um, 
you know, success begets success. And sometimes struggles, especially when you're getting your first taste of a new level, which he was at the beginning of the year, uh, can beget struggles. And so, you know, watching him develop and blossom over the season, I think that's one of the most um, rewarding things about being in that minor league environment day in, day out is, is watching how these guys progress. Um, and just seeing him have that last home series, first two games against New Hampshire, both games he hits walk-off home runs in extra innings off of the same pitcher on two different pitches. And then the next day he goes out and hits two bombs. Um, it, it was it was tremendous to watch for him. Yeah, he's got, you know, we've talked about Jake Cunningham, the tool shed. Uh, Billy Cook's yeah. got some tools as well. <laughs> he's been a mix of speed and power, like we said, 24 home runs, 30 stolen bases. And... I feel like he's got a pretty high floor just because he can play all over the field. You know, it seems like worst case, he could be like a utility player, spark plug that you could get in there when necessary. But my question is, where does he stand defensively? What's his best position? How good is he? I know he's played second base. He's played all the outfield positions. What's your take on his defense? The vast majority of what I saw from him was in right field and in second base. Um, those were the two positions where he spent the most time at second base. He's plenty smooth. His actions look fine. Like I said, he's a great athlete. He's very fluid, uh, in the infield, which kind of surprised me because most of what I saw early in the season was in the outfield. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, the outfield arm is huge. It's like some of the some of the throws he was making. You, know, you you go back to the wall in in Bowie. You go back and you pick up a ground ball, and he's just hosing guys at third base. I mean, it was remarkable. Um, that that to me is his best defensive tool is the arm. It doesn't show quite as much at second for obvious reasons. Um, but when he's out there and right, I mean, he wants to throw everyone out. <laughs> it's very obvious. Um, you know, sometimes early in the season, you could see guys get a little frustrated because he wasn't hitting cutoff men. But I mean, he he wants to he wants to get those outfield assists and throw guys out on the base paths. And it was fun to watch. Um, but I mean, he's he's really like I said, he's really athletic. I think the tool shed word is a good one for him. Um, and I think that next year at AAA is really going to be a a significant test for him in terms of how the bat plays. And if it does, then I think there's definitely a fourth outfielder, fifth outfielder kind of floor uh, for him where he might be able to make an impact. Maybe it's in this organization, maybe it's another one, but um, but he, he, I think he proved a lot of doubters wrong this year with, as Zach said, um, you know, the, the stuff that was going on after May 1st. Yeah, that first month just looked brutal. And considering yep. like the type of player we saw in Aberdeen, you're like, all right, this guy's got prodigious raw power. We know that. But like, is he going to be able to catch up to double-A pitching? And through that first month, it looked like he wasn't going to. But, I mean, you finished the year with what, 42 extra base hits, 30 stolen bases. I mean, it's – I'm just shocked that he spent so much time at second base just for whatever reason. Like, maybe I just think Billy Cook is bigger than he is. He doesn't see – when I think of Billy Cook, I do not think of Billy Cook second baseman. Uh, but the Orioles uh, clearly had him play a significant amount of time there, which is awesome. I think it's just going to add to that super utility type profile that hopefully he can evolve in. The only thing with me about Billy Cook, I think I said this before in a, another show, but the only thing that scares me is like I still have like the 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 Zach Watson you know terror that comes through into my mind. It's like we saw Zach Watson, who was we knew he had some power, uh, he had a little bit of speed as well. He was a good defensive outfielder, and then he had that breakout year in Bowie, and now he's playing indie ball. Um, so that's the only thing that scares me with Billy Cook. I'm. I'm shocked a little bit that they didn't give him that bump up to AAA for this final week plus the playoffs. But hopefully it looks like, I mean, see how the roster shakes out. But I imagine he certainly starts next year 
in AAA and we get a much better idea of what his future holds. But no doubt he was a true breakout year. And the thing, the one positive though that stood out to me is the quotes earlier in the year from Kyle Moore when he came out and, and said, obviously there's manager talk and guys are going to support their guys, right? But I feel like you can still parse some things out, specifically when Orioles coaching staff and Orioles front office talks. And when Kyle Moore is going to sit there and say, like, yeah, he's he's got the bat that he can hit major league pitching. This is a, a major league hitter. He's he's that type of player. Like, I, I trust Kyle's more words there. And I thought that was an insightful interview he had earlier in the year that, you know, maybe the Orioles do have something here with a 10th round pick Billy Cook out of Pepperdine. And, you know, if he's a little bit of a late bloomer, so be it. And if so, can never have too much depth in this organization. I do like that he had a career high walk rate, 8.4%. Yep. He was up from 7.8% last year and his career low strikeout rate, 25% after striking out over 30% every other season. So reasons for optimism that we're not going to see another Zach Watson. He should at least get to AAA. We'll see what he does from there. Bowie also had a few bats from the 2022 draft class this year. Jackson Holiday being the big name, but they also had Judd Fabian, Max Wagner, Dylan Beavers, and Silas Ardwan. And it was interesting to see the trajectory of these players as they made the move from Aberdeen to Bowie. Seemingly, Ardwan got better after not hitting that well at Aberdeen. He went up to Bowie and was pretty solid both defensively and offensively over the final months from them. Beavers, meanwhile, took a hot streak that started in about early to mid-June in Aberdeen and more or less wrote it through all the, the conclusion of Bowie's season. And then you look at Judd Fabian and Max Wagner's times there. And with Fabian, you have a much larger sample size, 64 games for him compared to just 27 for Wagner. Yet you kind of see the good and bad a little bit. Fabian, you have the power and the walks, but also very high strikeout numbers. Wagner was hitting for contact a little bit better at Bowie than he was at Aberdeen, but his strikeouts were up while his walks were down. So, Nick, I I know these are areas we've kind of discussed over the course of the season with these guys, and I know that you've said before, in particular, Max Wagner, you're not really sure what the Orioles have just yet. After seeing these guys um, during their stints at Bowie's, what are your takeaways for them? I mean, with with Wagner, I definitely see a guy who could develop into like a utility type player. I don't know, like I'm not comparing their skill sets at all, but like a Ramonarius type player, right? You play some third, you play some second, you got a little bit of pop, right? Maybe you're not an everyday guy. He's not going to win a Gold Glove like Arias did. Um, gold Glove is a whole other discussion in of itself. But you know, Wagner's a guy who can play a couple of different infield positions. I envision him being a guy who, you know, if he's getting significant time in the major leagues, he's going to hit 10, 15 home runs, or he's going to be a steady bat. His walk rate was super impressive. I think it was like 13, 14% walk rate uh, this year. That was in high A. Uh, I know it dipped a little bit there in double A, but he was adjusting. He had that late season. He got hit in the head. I know with the ball Mm -hmm. late in the year. So, you know, the double A stats, they kind of with Max Weiner, I think they kind of are what they are. No super big takeaways there, but I think just overall looking at his body of work, as a utility type player there. He's got good speed as well. We mentioned he only stole like what three or four bases in throughout his college career. And he had 20, like 30 stolen bases this year. So that was fun to see. I still, I don't, I don't see like a screaming tool with Max Wagner. It's like, all right, if you're going to find a way to break into the infield in this organization at the major league level, like you've got to have something that sticks out because you've got Gunnar Henderson, you got Jackson holiday coming up. It's, it's a tight group. It's a tough group to crack. 
I don't know if I see that with Max Wagner. I still think he probably ends up being someone who like really beefs up maybe potential offseason trade. Um, I hate saying that because the Orioles just use what a second round draft capital on him, but he had a good year. Um, you know, Beavers, I think there's no denying that it was a rough start for Dylan Beavers right down there in Aberdeen, but I still believe that this was a guy who could put it all together and kind of go on a Colton Kowser type run. Once it all clicked for him, and it did click. He didn't end the year in AAA like Kowser did last year, but I mean, Beavers sitting there with you know, a 20% strikeout rate in AA, which was lower than his highest strikeout rate. Very impressive 13% walk rate. The 150 WRC plus in Bowie was phenomenal. I know he only hit two home runs. I'm not concerned about the home run. We know they made a lot of adjustments with his swing. So I, I figured, look, just get to double A and show that you're a solid hitter, which he did. Um, and now, like, the power will come. I have all the faith that this is going to be able to put up like 20 home runs next year, possibly between double A and triple A or all at triple A. I don't know, but. Is he's gonna that home run power is gonna shine next year? And you mentioned Arduan there, like touted as the best defensive catcher coming out of that draft class. The bat really wasn't showing too much. He did what have like what was that FCL start? He had four or five games and like no hits, but eight or nine walks is something ridiculous. Didn't really hit in Aberdeen, but we saw a good average down there in Bowie. And you know if if that offensive breakout was for real, and he can be you know a decent offensive hitter. It's a guy who's going to have a, a long career in baseball because we know the defense is good. And if he can provide some value offensively, it's a nice little nice little depth piece to have um, down there in AAA next year. Yeah, I'll go in reverse order just to make things interesting. Silas Sardouan, I feel like, is Maverick Hanley Redux, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's actually a pretty good thing. Uh, he's got a little bit of pop, good defense, good arm. You know, he's going to play for that backup catcher position down the line if uh, – if Adley and Samuel Basayo don't just own it permanently for the next decade. Um, uh, let's see. Beavers, yeah. I think the biggest thing for him was, you know, he's a guy that is constantly making adjustments. I think consistency was key, and, and he found that. he It clicked for him, and, and I don't think he really slumped after that, again, even with the promotion to double A. So I think, yeah, he really increased his stock when it comes to just a guy you want to – chance to see in Baltimore maybe as soon as 2025 if he can continue to develop and Max Wagner yeah I like what you said about Ramon Arias he does seem like you know he's not going to hit too much power but he's going to hit the ball hard it's easy to forget though that he's more of a project because he was drafted young out of college after only like a half season of of starting so I feel like there's some more improvement to be found in his game to be unlocked by this development team than uh, on the surface, you might think so. And, you know, we did heckle him at third base in Aberdeen, me and my son, and he did uh, wave and come give my son a ball. So he'll, he has a place in my heart for that, at least. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think that that's a lot of, that's a lot of names to kind of go through. But uh, I think with, with Wagner, um, we didn't have a really good look at him at home in Bowie. I want to say he maybe had a series and a half before that injury took place. And then he kind of came back for the last few games against New Hampshire. Um, the thing that popped for me is, and I mentioned this earlier with somebody else, but the arm is strong at third. It's a good arm. Um, and I would say it's a, it's a better arm than an Arias. Uh, he played both at second and third. 
Um, I was surprised to see him get a lot of reps at second base. I didn't know that was a part of his, his profile, uh, but he looked fine over there. Third base is definitely his natural position, um, but he definitely hit the ball hard. I think he hit into some bad luck during the time he was, uh, he was with Bowie, at least in the home games that I saw. Um, Beavers, I remember hearing a lot of comps with him with Christian Yelich when he was coming out of the draft, the tall left-handed stroke in the outfield. And I think that kind of came to, to fruition a little bit. Uh, this year. That was really impressive to see for him. Uh, the bat stays in the hitting zone for an incredibly long time. I did not think he had the hit tool that he showed um, during the time he was with uh, Bowie, but I mean, it was it was an easy flick uh, into the right center field gap over and over and over again, and on multiple different pitches. Um, I think that he's obviously going to end up you know, in Bowie at the start of next year in, in all likelihood. Uh, maybe a little bit of a left-on-left uh, situation that maybe needs a little bit of work. But, uh, you know, in the outfield, he looks fine. He looks graceful. Uh, he's a tall guy, so he was trying to rob some home runs on more than one occasion uh, and was able to do so successfully a couple of times. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of guys in that draft class, I think the one guy that I would love to spend some more time talking about is Judd Fabian. Because, um, I mean, he had an extended run at Bowie this year. I think it was almost 300 plate appearances. And that guy is a three true outcome guy, if there ever was one. I was uh, just looking at the math earlier today, and uh, I was comparing it to Kyle Schwarber, because that's the first guy that comes to mind when I think of those guys. And I think Schwarber had a three true outcome like 54% of the time this year, and Judd, Fabian, and Bowie was about 60%. So when you combine all of that together that's just a massive number uh but i do think that the swing and miss got better as the year went on and uh, you know as his time in Bowie continued he was striking out over 40 percent of the time for the majority of the time he was there and that started to come down and down and down and i think he ended the season as you know maybe 37 37 and a half something like that um but the walk rate is like 15 percent for him and to me that plays um and i think you know, he's, he's probably going to get a good extended run early in, at Bowie next year as well. Um, but the, the, big, the biggest thing about Fabian is he's a center fielder. I mean, full stop. He is a center fielder. He's got, he gets great jumps. He's got more than enough wheels to cover the gaps out there, and the arm is outstanding. So that was, to me, the, the best thing to look at with him is that he really profiles well out there uh, in center. He turned, you know, plays that other guys would make into diving plays into running plays. And he turned plays that other guys would make into running plays into what looked really easy out there. Uh, so to me, that was the most encouraging thing about him. If he can stick in center field, then that changes the expectations a little bit in terms of what the bat does. Yeah. If we're talking about Fabian, like we said earlier, if he can get that hit tool tightened up, then he's like a potential all-star type of player just with the raw tools he has with the power and speed it's tough to bat under 200 well under 200 and have an ops over 700 pretty impressive um he walks he hits for power yeah if he can strike out 30 percent or less i like his chances and i like the uh the history that the orioles have in getting players to be able to do that so i'm uh i'm all in on not all in but i'm i'm still in on judd fabian in the long term for sure yeah, it was, you know, you look at the, like the high numbers and I think how long did he, he went some ridiculous stretch without having a double. And then, then he had like six or seven or eight doubles in like a week or two weeks span. The extra bases just started clicking for Fabian there in high A. And we heard a lot about the swing and miss getting better and better as the season progressed when he was with Aberdeen. And you look at that final line in Aberdeen and you're like, all right, you're hitting 280. You've got a 25% strikeout rate, which you know isn't great. And it's going to tick up a little bit when it gets up to Bowie. But 
like Mark said, the defense is elite. It's amazing to watch him out there. Like, and it's, it's pretty crazy to like watch Dante Williams out there on a near nightly basis and see what he does defensively. And then be like, Judd Fabian is the guy though. Like to have both these guys in that same outfield is unbelievable. But yeah, Fabian is a phenomenal defender. And I think with that defense and that power, you're like, all right, 25% strikeout rate. Not concerned about that at all. You got to Bowie. I didn't know the three true outcomes was that extreme, near 60%. That's uh, mind blowing, but it's a 15, 16% walk rate. Like that's what I like to see. We know the power's there. The walk rate is huge. He's going to get on base. He did end up, it was the, the final strikeout rate, strikeout rate was 37.5% at double A across 280 plate appearances. Yeah, that's not great at all. But like Mark said, it did come down as the season winded down there. If that can get back down next year, I, I think all is going to be right with Judd Fabian as he moves up to the next level. Um, you know, it's, it is scary to see that. But at the same time, everything else about his play and his profile just screams like future big leaguer. Um, so it's, it's just the strikeout rate. If you can get that down, you do have a pretty special player here with Fabian. We're going to talk about the pitching for the Bay Sox in a minute. Um, but I do want to mention Samuel Basayo did wrap up his season with the Bay Sox. Four games there, all of them on the road at Harrisburg last week where the Bay Sox ended their 2023 campaign. Basayo pretty much picked up right where he left off at Aberdeen by going 7 for 15 on the week, which was good for a 467 average. He had a double and a triple in the game against the Senators over the weekend, which were his first two extra base hits at the double A level and brought him up to 53 extra base hits overall across three levels this season, including 20 home runs and 26 doubles. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's worth revisiting for a moment. Samuel Basayo now consensus top 100 prospect in baseball. How much further is he going to climb in 2024? Top five, bare minimum prospect in baseball. I truly think he's a special, special talent. Um, I'm all, I am all in on him. Um, yeah, he's 19. And after seeing him in person, especially like Mark said about Kobe Mayo, it's just different when it, when the bat hits the ball. With him, it's it sounds different. It feels different. He carries himself different. Yeah, he's a. I think he's a superstar, first international superstar to come through the Orioles system. Let's go, Jackson. How, how, I don't want to say he's going to be the best prospect in baseball and give us it for the fourth year in a row, but he might. He might. I mean, I just look at those Aberdeen numbers. He only nineteen years old. He only played in twenty seven games in high before they moved him up to Double A. I know the season ended, so it's like, all right, you probably don't want to shut him down for the year quite yet. Get him up. They wouldn't have moved him up to Bowie, though, if they didn't think he could handle it, even if it was just for a week. And in those 27 games at high A, he had 19 walks to 20 strikeouts as a 19-year-old and had an OPS over 1,100. And we talk all the time about guy. We know guys struggle in Aberdeen. Sometimes some of that is the ballpark a little bit, and some of that is it's that's a big jump from low A to high A, especially as these younger international prospects. They It takes some time to adjust. They take a little bit longer. Look at guys like... You know, Freddie Ben Cosme, a guy who we're still, you know, fairly high on, but spent all year in Aberdeen and struggled. Um, Basayo had none of those struggles and ended the year in double A. It is, it's good to see the national media kind of really starting to hype him up a lot. I'm anxious to see how high he goes on a top 100 list. I, I could see him easily starting out next year in top 20, top 25 prospect in baseball. And then once he gets that full year in Bowie, 
man, it's it's scary to see like what he's going to be able to do down there in that field next year. Yeah, I mean, if he's a catcher, he's going to be a top 10 prospect pretty quickly next year, I think, because mm-hmm. I think, uh, I don't know, the, the power stroke is incredible with him. Uh, it seems like the approach is just so advanced for his age. Um, I can't wait. Easily the guy I'm the most excited to watch next year at the beginning of the season uh, down at Prince George's Stadium. Mark, we'd be remiss if we didn't get your thoughts on Jackson Holiday, who spent 36 games at Bowie before being promoted to Norfolk. Coming into this year, I think we all would have said it would be great if Jackson Holiday makes it to Bowie, but is that going to happen? He's 19 years old, on and on. Well, Bowie was just one stop uh, in the season for him as he ended up at AAA. And the little bit of time that you got to see Holiday this season, what were your impressions of him? Yeah, I was honestly, I was kind of hoping he'd finish the season with us. So when he uh, when he got bumped up uh, coming into our last uh, home series there in New Hampshire, it was kind of a little bit deflating uh, for us. Obviously, it's really exciting to see him get uh, get a shot at AAA at that young an age. But uh, we were kind of hoping we'd get one last look with him before he uh, went for the, the 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 playoff series, hopefully with Norfolk. Um, but you know. He's just a baseball player. (laughs) Anytime you have the number one prospect uh, in baseball coming in, it's going to create a lot of energy. The buzz in the stadium was electric for that uh, debut that he had with us. I want to say it was coming out of the All-Star break. The double-A All-Star break is that first Friday night uh, coming back. Um, It was just a huge crowd, and people were fired up. Um, And he didn't disappoint. Uh, I mean, the the hit tool was exceptional for him. Uh, He could get his bat to any ball that was thrown at him. Um, And I think the actions up the middle of the diamond were really strong. Um, You know, he's... He's not quite the the force of nature that Gunner is, and he's not quite as slick as a Joey Ortiz. Uh, but you can tell. I mean, he's a guy who's very, very polished out there in the middle infield. Uh, he got a good number of reps at second base during his time there, and I think there's a chance that that might be uh, where he first cracks in uh, whenever his time comes at the major league level. I think when you see what else the Orioles have in the middle infield, I think the tools that uh, the Jackson has, his athleticism, the fluidity of his actions, all of that stuff, it will all play very, very well at second base if that ends up being uh, sort of an opening for him. Um, you know, he, he, I think in the early part of his time at double A, a lot of people were looking at his, at his batting average and just, you know, sort of being blown away by how much success he was having early. And early on, I think that was buffered by a lot of infield hits. And uh, he is lightning quick. I don't know if he's the fastest guy on the base pass, but he gets from home to first real fast. Um, it's, it's almost like a, like an Ichiro in the way because you know, the ball leaves his bat and it seems like he's already two steps down the line. Um, so I think you know as he you know moving up to to AAA and obviously eventually to the majors, that's not necessarily going to be as big of a part of his game. Uh, but as he continued in AA, he started hitting the ball on the ground a little bit less, lofting the ball, a few more line drives, a few more fly balls. Uh, it took him a couple weeks to get into one and get his first double-A home run. That was a big moment for him. Um, but it's very obvious that he's a super high-ceiling guy, even if he didn't have the the prospect shine of being the number one prospect in the game or the last name Holiday. It would be very obvious that he was a guy who's going to be a major contributor down the road. Always good to hear a high praise for Holiday. We'll turn our attention now to the pitching staff and – we shouted out Forrest Herman earlier in the segment, and there was a reason for that. Is the Bowie Bay Sox had a pretty solid pitching staff this year. And when you look at some of the pitchers who had success there, it included a mixture of guys who ended the season at AAA Norfolk, as well as some hurlers who began the year down in Aberdeen and then came to Bowie 
and finish strong. So, Nick, when you look at this group, both the starting rotation and the bullpen, what jumps out at you and what individual players uh, really impressed you this season? I mean, I'll, I'll just start with just looking at the guys who kind of ended the year uh, in Bowie first, like Alex Pham, I think is first and foremost. Like, I don't think he'll get it, but Pham certainly in the conversation, I think, for Orioles minor league pitcher of the year honors. It's probably going to go to Chase McDermott, but um, still Pham went from being this like low A relief pitcher, pitcher from you know small school out in California with a good curveball, and now he's a top 30 prospect. And he had, you look at the high numbers, he was striking out 37% of the guys he faced in high A, but the walk rate was pretty high, like 12, 13%. He gets promoted to Bowie for that second half of the year. And yeah, the strikeout rate dropped to 23%, but as Bob mentioned, you know, that's, we saw that a lot with guys. Look at Justin Armbruster, wasn't really striking out guys, and Bowie gets up to triple A, and his strikeout rate jumped. I think some of that is maybe an emphasis this year in Bowie on, making sure your stuff plays in the zone. Uh, you know, if, and you can get guys, the a ball hitters to swing at junk, but double a hitters aren't going to swing at that junk. So make sure your stuff plays in the zone. And if, if that is the case, I don't have, you know, charts or graphs to pinpoint exactly like specific numbers on, you know, how often fam was throwing the ball in the zone and high a versus double a. But if that is that case, then you know, fam stuff's going to play pretty well because the, the walk rate dropped, uh, a noticeable amount once he got to double A. Uh, the strikeouts were still respectable. And in total, I mean, this guy had a 2.57 ERA, a whip of 1.02, and a 182 average against across 112 total innings this year. He's a top 30 prospect in the system now. It's I think he's one of those guys who got to Bowie and firmly established himself as a legitimate pitching prospect in this organization. Yeah, absolutely. I was just looking at the spreadsheet of pitchers in double a that ended in double a and ended in high a i think you're gonna have a lot of fun next year watching Bowie pitching staff between maybe seth johnson gene pinto alex fam trace bright uh ryan long juan nunez Kyle verbitsky daniel no- daniel lloyd cameron weston just uh, a real treasure trove of arms in the system that will be going through the Bay Sox. but yeah alex fam he was striking everybody out in high A, and then he was just getting guys out the the old-fashioned way in double A. But, yeah, definitely entered the radar helium pitching prospect and uh, really excited to see what he does if he's back to start next year in double A or if he goes up to triple A. I would imagine he kind of gets the Chase McDermott, Justin Armbruster-style promotion in, like, late May, early June. But we will see Gene Pinto... I, I don't know why he kind of slowed down innings-wise towards the end of the season. If there was an injury, if it was just, you know, fatigue, I don't know what the deal is there. I would like to see him obviously get a full season or maybe uh, three-quarters of a season in A and then see what happens. There's just uh, there's so many high upside arms here, and we haven't even got to, like, the recently drafted high-velocity Big time stuff, guys coming up the system even lower. But yeah, there's so many names to even, I feel like, go through them all one by one. But Brandon Young coming back, Kyle Bronovich coming back, Seth Johnson coming back. It's just like, man, pitching is uh, not going to be an issue, I don't think, for long. <laughs> so you can get rid of that narrative now, uh, national and even some local reporters. Yeah, the cupboard is definitely full, right? 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's enough of that already. Um, you guys were talking about Alex Pham, and it was always fun to watch him pitch this year as the guy just, he works quickly, he throws strikes. Um, you know, you, you didn't have those interminable, you know, 12, 13 pitch at bats where guys are fouling stuff off. He tended to get in and out of his innings relatively quickly. Um, I mean, he would, he would get through five and allow two or three base runners. Um, and it was just a pleasure to watch him pitch. And it's interesting because, I mean, the fast playing top of the zone, um, but he pairs it with the off-speed stuff really well. I think he developed the changeup uh, more and more and more as the season went on, and it was really fun to watch. Um, and I know you guys mentioned a number of the other guys who finished the season, um, but uh, it, it just it just was really enjoyable to see how the staff continued to progress, uh, you know, walking fewer guys, uh, inducing a little bit more contact, which with you know, with the, with the way, the, with the way the defense was at the end of the season, that's a good way to have a lot of success. And especially as you get up to Baltimore, uh, you know, that's going to continue to be the case. So uh, we had a lot of fun watching the pitching staff towards the end of the year this year. Bob mentioned Gene Pinto there at the end too. And, you know, Pinto of course is going to hold a special place in our hearts. He was the guy, one of the first guys I think that we really started hyping up after watching him in Delmarva. And then, the next year, I think it was like Fangraph specifically, who was like, yeah, we missed on Gene Pinto. Uh, he's in our top 30 now. We, we're fixing this issue. Not a great year last year when he was in high A. You know, the the walks, I think, were the big thing with Pinto. It was like almost like five per nine last year, like four and a half, five per nine last year. This year starts back in high A. The strikeout rate jumps back up and the walks went back down. We're like, all right, this is the Gene Pinto. He had like a sub three ERA when he got to Aberdeen. Like He's back. Then he gets the double A, and like Bob said, you know he hit the IL I think at least twice there at the end of the year. So yeah, I don't know if we know exactly what the injury was or or what it was or trying to you know manage innings there. I don't know, but still, same thing. We saw the strikeout rate once he got to Bowie. The strikeout rate really dipped. I think it went from let's see here, it went from thirty three percent high down to twenty one percent when he got to to double A Bowie. But he still kept the walk rate respectable. The ground ball rate took a spike up. I think for me, the biggest thing was he at least proved it in high A that he could get the strikeouts back and he could hone in that command. We know he's got this slider that righties are going to chase out of the zone, but the issue was he doesn't have that high velo fastball. And that's the thing I was worried about when he gets to double A, is he going to be able to get guys out with you know an 89, 90 mile an hour fastball? They're not going to be chasing the, the slider with two strikes because first he's got to get two strikes on these guys, which has been an issue for him in the past. I think he took steps forward this year. I was hoping to see more of him in double A this year, but I think injuries kind of hampered him there at the end. We'll we'll see. He's rule five eligible too, not to get into the rule five conversation here. That's a whole deep conversation with some of these guys, but he is rule five eligible. And if he's healthy though, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Pinto head out to Arizona in a couple of weeks and pitch in the Arizona fall league. But you know, I don't think he's at risk of being selected in the rule five draft, but if he does stand out in the AFL a couple of weeks before the rule five draft, that could be, Maybe an issue, but still, um, I think he starts next year in Bowie. And it'll be interesting to see what what they do with him. Like, does he continue? I think it was what him and Alex Fam kind of doing that, you know, piggyback role. They each, I think Fam just kind of started taking over. And so I'm going six innings tonight. Um, but it was still like pairing those two guys together. Maybe Pinto they keep in that role because maybe profiles more as a reliever moving forward. But he showed flashes again down there in high A at least. So promises for, uh, for next year. And he was still young. He was like two and a half years younger than the average double A player. So still hopes for a uh, Gene Pinto there. 
Yeah, I agree. One guy that I want to make sure that I, I recognize is Trace Bright because he ended at Bowie 17 really strong innings there, struck out 20 batters with the Bay Sox while issuing eight walks. And I talked a little bit earlier about the month-to-month progression with Billy Cook. There was something similar going on with Bright who had some really dominant outings in the month of April, but yet finished the month with a 5.79 ERA. And then in May, that ERA on a month-to-month basis took a big spike up to seven and a half. But then you look at that figure for the rest of the season, 2.86 in June, 3.18 in July, 2.66 in August, 2.77 in September. All along the way, he maintains pretty strong strikeout numbers. And while there were some spikes with the walks, in particular in June and August, for the most part, he kept them at respectable levels, especially for someone who has a really overpowering fastball that I'm not going to say it's better than Chase McDermott's when it's on, but it's in the conversation with some of the best fastballs in the farm system when it's working. So Bright's a guy that I fully expect is going to go back to Bowie next year and probably be there for at least the first couple months, but he's someone that could enter as a breakout candidate, even building off the fact that he broke out in his own way this year. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think the the McDermott comp is pretty solid. It's not quite the same velo profile, but when you're up in the press box, one of the things that you really get a chance to see is how the hitters react to the stuff. It's a little bit difficult to judge location because you're up on high there, but you can really see how the hitters are interacting with the stuff. And and so, you know, when you see uh, the same things out of the hitters' reactions to Trace Bright's fastball at the top of the zone, I mean, it's really remarkable to see. Um, and if he can get a little bit better command of his off-speed stuff. I think you've got a serious profile there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, love Trey Sprite. I think he's going to be even better next year. And I think there's even some guys like Peter Van Loon who has great stuff this year, obviously. Just flush it. But I think he has some upside as well. And a couple relievers that came through A Bowie this year, I think, deserve shouting out. We have in the past, but just Keegan Gillis... Dylan Hyde got there at the end. Juanison Charles was dominant in his time there. And Nolan Hoffman, I feel like these guys are legit relief prospects that should all be in AAA at some point next year. Yeah, I was going to – I got a little group here of relief prospects. I think at at least one of these guys, I think, is going to become a legitimate contributor in the major league level for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, You've got some guys here like Cade Stroud, who we know we talked a lot about in the offseason, and – it wasn't a great start to the year. I think one month, yes, the month of May, he had an ERA of 16.71, right? Not great. Walks were a major issue for much of the year, but he really turned it on in the month of August. He was phenomenal. 12 innings, 14 strikeouts, just two walks, allowed just two earned runs. I think maybe fatigue got to him at the end because he's had injuries and he pitched, what, 55 innings this year and he had 17 last year. Um 38 the year before that didn't pitch in 2020 17 is his first year in 2019 we know he can throw really hard he's got the high velo fastball john muley wrote a lot about him last offseason got me really excited about cage stroud unfortunately it didn't all pan out for him this year but i'm still holding out a little bit of hope for stroud i think um ryan hennon had a really good experience when he got to Bowie as well he was strong in aberdeen and when he got to Bowie. I got too many tabs open. They're all freezing on me here. When he got to Bowie, 12 innings, no earned runs allowed, uh, three walks to 14 strikeouts. Uh, this is a guy who's gone under the radar 
all year. Uh, yes, these guys are also older, but they all have like unique trajectories to the unique paths to, to where they got this year. Dylan Hyde, you mentioned Dylan Hyde there. Again, he's also 25 years old, but this is a D3 prospect who I think made a name for himself in the MLB Draft League, attracted the Orioles. He finished the year 45 total innings, uh, 68 strikeouts in 45 innings. Was really good in just a couple appearances there for Bowie. Phenomenal year there. And yeah, Keegan Gillis. You look at Keegan Gillis's numbers. I, he had two outings where he gave up three runs in each of the outings. But that was it. Like 33 outings this year, he had two blow-up outings. So that 2.43 ERA on the year, or even just the 3.75 ERA in Bowie, I think is really misleading. This guy in Aberdeen had a 0.54 ERA, a 0.36 average, no, 0.36 whip, and a 0.038 average against. Phenomenal when he's once he got to Bowie as well. 34 strikeouts in 24 innings. Yeah, again, he gave up six runs in two innings, uh, in two different outings. That's it. Uh, other than that, he was lights out, and he could give you some length. A lot of two innings, two inning outings there um, throughout the year. So I know there's a lot of names. But I think at least one of those guys are going to be a major contributor in this organization. Yeah, I think Gillis is. is I'm sorry, Gillis in particular is a really fascinating profile for me because the guy's six foot eight. I mean, you can see him out in the bullpen before the game starts, uh, standing there for the national anthem, and he's towering over the rest of those guys. And it's not like they're small guys out there, uh, but it's also an extreme over the top delivery. So what I would love to know from the Orioles analytics is how high that release point is because it's got to be insane compared to what you see out of most guys. And then the other guy that you all mentioned was Dylan Hyde. I think I only got to see him in one outing in Bowie, uh, but it was, you know, in the, in the, in the latter stages of one of the games against uh, New Hampshire, it was a three inning outing. It was the ninth, 10th and 11th. And he managed to strand the guys in the 10th and 11th, the ghost runners and give them a chance for one of those Billy cook walk-offs. It, it was really an impressive outing. I think it was maybe four or five strikeouts in those three innings. And, and it just showed a lot of grit, a lot of toughness. I want to see more of him next year. Yeah, only thing with the relief prospects, we've talked about it before, but I'm not as worried about the age with these guys just because, you know, we've seen Felix Bautista come up, make his major league debut at 28 after a million years in the minors. And as long as you figure it out, I think if you can throw a ball hard and uh, command it a little bit, you know, a major league team will take a chance on you. I don't think they care as much about age when it comes to that. And if there's one thing about the Orioles, we know they're not going to give up on a guy like Morgan McSweeney. Cage Stroud, these guys have like been good stuff, poor command guys that you know we've been dreaming on for a while, and and the Orioles will stick stick with them. I think if they do finally give up on them, it's not for lack of trying or or want to. Um, we've seen it with even their waiver claims and stuff like that at the major league level. So, and with that, we'll head into our final segment of the night where we shout out players outside of our top thirty for something they've done recently, whether it's been a good week, a good game, or just something interesting. The stat line that we want to note, and we should add that this might be the last time we had this segment this year, or at least the last time that it's going to include players from more than one team as the Norfolk Tides will be the only Orioles affiliate playing accent in the minor leagues next week. And I'm going to start with Bob, who uh, has a pitcher with, from the Tides that he's going to shout out along with a utility player that you may have heard of a few times because he's done had his moments. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, my pitcher is Noah DeNoyer. Just wanted to shout out him, shout him out because he's he went under the knife. He he had Tommy John surgery. 
I think the last week or so. And, you know, we've seen a lot of guys come back from Tommy John surgery late in this season. So, you know, he had not his best season after a really strong 2022. So just wanted to give him a shout out and get healthy and, and come back strong in 2025. His career is far from over. And also I wanted to talk about Shane Fontana. I think I've talked about him on here before, but he had a two double game on Sunday and you know, I think he's just like a sleeper outfield prospect that, again, the Orioles have kept around for some reason. They clearly see something in him because he was a 2019 draftee, and uh, he's still here. He's He had like a mid to high 700s OPS between uh, AA and AAA, so you never know. You never know. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, two AAA guys here because I figure we were talking a lot about Bowie. And to get Mark involved here at the end there, I'm interested, uh, maybe some guys that we didn't touch on when we talked about Bowie that you really enjoyed watching this season. But for me, I'm going to go with uh, Garrett Stallings. I'm going to go with uh, the local guy here, at least local local for me. Uh, Chesapeake native, so it's been a lot of fun to watch him be able to pitch at Harbor Park this year and this past week against Memphis, uh, a, a team that we know whenever Norfolk and Memphis play, anything can happen when those two teams get together. But he went seven innings this year, allowed just one run, uh, walked one, struck out seven. His last two outings of the year, he allowed just two runs across 13 innings with 17 strikeouts and three walks. I think he's going to be an interesting conversation to have uh, at the end of the year. And the hitter, I'm just going to not too much uh, to pick from here, but uh, I'm going to shout out Lewin Diaz one final time. Uh, he had a home run last week, four walks as well in six games. Just he's been steady all year. I uh, never got the call up to the big leagues for the Orioles, but he had 17 home runs this year, had an 815 OPS, a lot of fun, especially in the beginning part of the year. He was sporting OPS around 900 for like almost the first half of the season. So good to see him settle in this year after bouncing around like six different organizations this offseason and uh, have a good year down there in Norfolk. Luckily, we never had to use him up at the major league level. Uh, the guys that I want to shout out, I'll start with my pitcher, uh, one of the Bay Sox relievers, Ryan Long, ended his season on a high note as he pitched on September 15th, delivering four shutout innings of relief and picking up a win over the Harrisburg Senators. Long did struggle a little bit after being promoted from Aberdeen to Bowie, but it's been a pretty good year for him. Starting off the World Baseball Classic, got in spotlight when he struck out Mike Trout. Then he went to Aberdeen, pitched really well, earned the promotion to Bowie in mid-July. I look forward to seeing him on the mound there next season. In the meantime, he can feel pretty good about a 2023 campaign uh, that he had between Aberdeen and Bowie that was very impressive. And then for my hitter this week, Kyle Stowers. Uh, comes back from off the IL from a fractured nose and immediately makes an impact in Norfolk's lineup against Memphis on Friday. He goes two for four with two doubles. He follows that up with a game on Saturday in which he goes one for four with a home run. It's been a little bit of a tough year for Stowers, not being able to crack the major league roster. Then he's dealt with a few injuries in the minor leagues, including a shoulder issue earlier this year. And then the nose problem that just most recently landed him on the IL. But all in all, you look at the numbers, the power is still there. Hopefully in 2024, he has an extended opportunity in the major leagues somewhere. And I did see a tweet from Dan Conley that says he's on pace for a record uh, broken noses this season. I don't know if that's <laughs> accurate or not. Join us next week when Dan Conley <laughs> comes on, finally comes on the page. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
This is a fun segment. I've enjoyed this for you guys all year. Um, so a hitter that I would love to, to talk a little bit about is Anthony Servideo. Um, you know, he's a guy who I think, you know, had a really tough year last year with injuries, uh, was up at the double A level, if not immediately, then shortly thereafter, almost out of necessity. Like I talked about, the middle infield was kind of a, a little bit of a revolving door early in the season. And it, you could tell it was pretty clear at the beginning of the year that he was a little overmatched at the plate, whether it was just trying to get his rhythm back from the previous year and, and, and being so inactive or uh, just adjusting to double A pitching, whatever it was. Um, but I remember a lot of conversation about him when he first started down in FCL and, and uh, at the beginning of his career and the batting eye was, was so elite and it was, he was the walk God there for a minute uh, at the very beginning. And I think at the start of this year, I want to say it was maybe 45 strikeouts before he had his first walk. It was a really staggering number. Um, and it was something we were sort of watching for a long period of time. Um, but it's a, just another one of those Sherman Johnson success stories, whereas the year went on, the end of year stat line doesn't really reflect it because the beginning was so challenging for him. But by the end of the year, he was really providing tough at bats, starting to hit the ball a lot harder. It's not necessarily over the fence power, but it's gap. You know, you can hit gap to gap and get on, get on base a little bit. Um, and that was really good to see. And he was one of the more solid uh, middle infielders early in the season. He was one of the guys where, okay, if he was in the lineup at shortstop, you at least felt good about that spot, uh, you know, early in the season. And so uh, to see him progress over the course of the year was really, really enjoyable to watch. And then on the pitching side, um, Connor Loprich just got the call up to AAA um, after basically a couple of years uh, with the Bay Sox. And a part the, the the pitching line won't show it at the end of the year because it had one blow up outing. I think it was five runs against New Hampshire uh, in his last home outing. Um, but other than that, he was probably the most reliable reliever that the Tide sent out there all season. He was a guy that could come in and could strand runners. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know to what extent the profile plays the major league level. Um, but he was extremely reliable, dependable, and, and uh, you know, a guy that you could throw in just about any situation, could give you a couple innings, could give you two to three if you needed. And um, you know, I, it was, I was really happy to see him get the call to AAA at the end of the year. I uh, wish I could have gotten a chance to see him uh, in that last game of the season, but it got rained out. Uh, my wife and I were going to head up there, unfortunately. Um, but uh, you know, congratulations to that guy uh, and uh, hoping for the best for him uh, that he's able to stick around in the organization and do some things in Norfolk next year. So Mark, we enjoyed hearing your insight tonight. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we really look forward to hearing you on the mic at PZ stadium next spring. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Um, you know, I, I hope that everything works out, get the opportunity to do it again next year. And uh, you know, would, would love to have you guys around. Um, I, I think I can, uh, speak for all of us in the in the Patreon community. Um, you know, you you guys have given us a lot to be really thankful for over the course of these last few years. Um, and when you have a day like yesterday, uh, where it all kind of comes to fruition, and so many guys who we've been talking about amongst this group and the WhatsApp group for so many years, um, it's really been a great ride, and and I'm thrilled to be a part of it, and so thankful that you guys were able to have me on tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. We've been listening to Mark Gray Mendez, who is a Bowie Bay Sox PA announcer in 2023 and a member of our Patreon community as we wrapped up the Bowie Bay Sox 2023 season. Join Bob, Nick, and I next week when we recap the Norfolk Tides regular season and preview their postseason. We'll also get into the latest news concerning the Orioles then. In the meantime, check us out on X, formerly known as Twitter, at BSL on the Verge. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, 
And do not forget about our live show at Checker Spot Brewing on Monday, October 2nd. We'll be joined by John Mioli, Connor Newcomb, Andy Koska, and possibly more. We might have a few more announcements next week. We'll see. And while you're browsing the internet, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, your 2-0 Baltimore Ravens, college sports, and more. And while you're on BSL, hop on the message board and join the discussion with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors to BSL. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On the Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to 200 in fee-free overdraft with the Chime checking account. Sign up today at Chime.com slash Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stripe Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.